Hi there, it's uh, Stefan Molyneux again. Thank you so much for tuning back in for a quick sprint through a philosophical analysis of religion. Now, when people talk about the existence of a deity, they're usually not talking about the existence of some utterly abstract being that lives in some other dimension or even possibly permeates our own space or dimension, but that does nothing to intervene or to communicate with or to respond to uh, human affairs, human desires, human obedience, human virtue, human wishes, human prayers, and so on. So they're not talking God like uh, uh, an invisible being that never interferes with human affairs whatsoever. Usually what people are doing when they speak about God is they're talking about a deity who uh, created the universe, who is moral, who intervenes, who listens to prayers, and so on. And I just wanted to run through some of the stages of belief and a few of the critiques that we might bring to bear upon these stages of belief based on the analysis that we're putting forward, or we have been putting forward over these last a half dozen or so video casts. And the reason that I'm doing this is not to pick at people's religious beliefs, <laughs> probably doing a little more than picking at them, but the reason that I'm doing this is because I really want to show how a rational and focused and logical and empirical philosophical understanding can answer some pretty major questions in life. We don't want philosophy to be uh, really about esoteric or abstract arguments uh, what is truth, what is beauty, and this. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those things, but fundamentally, what we want is for philosophy to be able to be able to answer the fundamental questions that we have about nature, the universe, society, man, women, virtue, vice, good, evil, and so on. Because if philosophy can't do that, then it's kind of like a it's kind of like a hobby, you know, like stamp collecting or something like that. So the reason that I'm bringing these topics that we've developed to bear on a topic as large and controversial as religion is because I really want to show that what we've developed as principles here are very applicable to some very fundamental beliefs that are very common in society. So uh, I could have picked the state, uh, I could have picked classes, I could have picked particular economic theories, and we could have applied the same kind of rigorous empirical logical philosophy to those beliefs, but I chose uh, religion because uh, I want to go to hell. So I'm going to run through a few of the stages of reasoning that have to be fulfilled in order not for the question to be, does God exist, but is religion uh, valid? So I got a couple of notes here because this is quite complicated and I... <laughs> I don't want to ramble. So the first thing, of course, is that God has to be uh, believed or has to be proven to exist. And as we talked about in the last video cast, there are some significant problems with putting forward the proposition that God exists. So let's, um, but let's accept that God does exist for the moment. One of the wonderful things about philosophy is that it doesn't matter when the premise is Ill illogical. It doesn't matter what you accept. Uh, every single following premise will be uh, illogical as well. So you can accept that God exists and still not end up with religion, 
right? Because it certainly could be the case that God exists, but religion is not valid. And what that would mean is that God exists, but really does live in some other dimension, has no capacity or desire or willingness to intervene in human affairs, doesn't listen to prayers, you know, this idea, the, the deist idea from the 18th century, the blind watchmaker just winds up reality, so to speak, and watches it tick down and doesn't uh, move to intervene any more than you move to intervene uh, to make your computer process stuff, you know, sort of get back in there and push electrons around. So even if we accept that something like a deity exists, it still doesn't lead us to the conclusions of uh, religion, of, of changing one's behavior. If I said that uh, an invisible being lived on the far side of the moon that knew everything uh, but was never going to communicate with everyone and could never be detectable by any methodology, then you would sort of say, okay, that's nice, I guess, but what does it really have to do with me and how would it conceivably affect anything that I do in my life? So even if we accept that God exists then it certainly doesn't translate into any particular change in your behavior. Because if this being is never going to communicate with you, uh, if this being is uh, never going to intervene uh, in human affairs or in the world in any way, shape, or form, then to all intents and purposes, existing for a deity like that would be exactly the same. Exactly the same as not existing. So... First of all, we have to say that God exists. Now, if we're trying to put forward a philosophical truth, and as we've talked about before, every time you put forward a proposition, you are also, by the very nature of propositions, including principles in that. So, a physicist cannot say that a rock exists, because that's a very specific thing, right? A physicist uh, can't uh, just pick something up has to pick up a pair of sunglasses and say, my physical theory is that these sunglasses exist. Because that's not a physical theory, that's an observation of a discrete physical instance. It's not a, it's not a theory. Uh, two plus two is four is a theory. A bunch of apples on a desk is not a theory, it's just an empirical manifestation of a theory. So, whenever you put forward a proposition like God exists, what you're really doing is not putting forward a proposition that says God exists. What you're doing is you're putting forward a proposition which says consciousness exists without matter or energy. Consciousness exists without matter or energy. And consciousness exists without matter and energy, and it lives forever, and it knows all things, and has all power, and we'll forget about the contradictions about those for the moment. What you're doing is not saying, this exists, but this type of thing can exist. So you're not saying, this is a pair of sunglasses. This sungla these sunglasses exist. What you're saying, in sort of the equation here, is that sunglasses exist, of which this is an instance. Right, So you can't just make up a rule that says God exists. What you're saying when you say God exists is uh, infinite, all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, benevolent, virtuous, perfect consciousness can exist without material form, without sensual evidence, with uh, no uh, energy traces or anything like that. Now, if you do put forward that as a proposition, then... 
if you accept that it's true that consciousness can exist without matter or energy, without any biological constraints, then there's no reason in the world to believe that only one of those things exists. It's a very important thing to understand. If you say as a principle that consciousness can exist without matter or form and blah, 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 then there's absolutely no reason to believe that only one of those things can exist. So, the first thing that you have to accept is that God exists. The second thing that you have to accept is that only one God exists. Now, the third thing that you have to accept is not only that God exists, so gods exist, but that only one God exists, and also that only your God exists. The God that uh, you were taught about, uh, uh, Krishna or, or Set or uh, Osiris or Zeus or uh, the Christian deity or Yahweh or uh, the, the Islam Islamic deity, that only the God that you ta were taught about when you were a child and, and grew up with, that only that one God exists and that all the other gods are false. So this is a pretty heavy uh, series of propositions to stomach from a, you know, we're just looking at this from a standpoint of rational, objective, and empirical philosophy. That's quite a lot to ask a philosopher to accept. God, that consciousness can exist without matter in the contradiction to all biological and physical uh, facts of reality and against all principles of logic and that only one of them exists, and that the one that I grew up with and was taught about in Sunday school, or the Madras, or, or the uh, uh, wherever you learned about your religion, that only that God exists, and that's completely correct, and everybody else's uh, definition of the deity is completely incorrect, and of course atheists are even more incorrect. Now, the next thing that you have to believe, the fourth thing that you have to believe in order for religion to be valid, organized religion to be valid. Because if God exists, only one God exists, and only your God exists, there's still absolutely no reason for there to be such a thing as organized religion. Because you can just sit and uh, have a chat with your God, or believe in your God, or do whatever. The next thing that you have to believe is that God intervenes in the world that God intervenes in the world. Because, going back to our invisible, omniscient elf on the dark side of the moon, you might have a vague, distant regard for such an entity, but you wouldn't get up early on Sunday to go sing songs and pray, because this deity would be completely unresponsive, and would never interfere or intervene or ever be traceable in any way, shape, or form, would never dream of calling you up a mountain and handing you a bunch of tablets, would never imagine burning bushes or turning water into wine or uh, any of the things that you read of in certain religious books, would never dream of, uh, in the Greek mythologies, of, of raping a mortal and, and putting forward a half-divine, half-mortal entity. Uh, so there would be no possibility whatsoever that this deity would intervene. And... So you, but in order for there to be such a thing as organized religion that you're willing to follow, then you have to believe that this deity 
intervenes in human life. Now, of course, once you start to believe that kind of stuff, then you get into even more logical difficulties. Because if a deity is going to intervene in human affairs, answer prayers, uh, burning bushes, uh, uh, Jesus driving the pigs off a cliff or healing the lepers or whatever, then you have a deity that is willing to alter the behavior of matter and energy at will and to some degree at whim, it would seem. And now this deity has moved from a non-detectable um, agency to a detectable agency. Right now, we're beginning to have a null hypothesis. If a deity is going to intervene in the affairs of the world, then we are going to begin here to have a null hypothesis. So, uh, to take an example, if, if Zeus was not the thunder god, but just, I don't know, some whitehead guy sitting somewhere, if Zeus was not the thunder god, then there's no null hypothesis really in, in this sort of particular instance for Zeus's existence or non-existence. But if you say Zeus causes the lightning, that he rides in a chariot and he hurls his thunderbolts down from his chariot, then you begin to have a null hypothesis for the existence of a deity, right? So if you say that Zeus uh, rides a chariot, hurls his thunderbolts, and that's where the thunder comes from, well then you're starting to get somewhere. Because then, once you develop the technology or whatever, you can then examine the clouds through infrared spectrography, or you could fly a plane up there with whatever sensing devices. And if you did, in fact, find a guy up there with white hair and flowing beard, hurling his thunderbolts down upon the unsuspecting masses, then obviously that would be a pretty good argument for the existence of a deity, right? Because this deity is now intervening this deity is now intervening in the physical world, and so you can measure the effects of that intervention. And if you said Zeus causes the thunder, uh, sorry, Zeus causes the lightning, and you go up and you find that it's just electrical charges built up in clouds zapping down to the earth and so on, then that's a disproof, right? Since the proposition is that Zeus creates lightning, then the disproof is that, no, Zeus doesn't create the lightning, build up of electrical charges in the atmosphere, uh, build, uh, they, that causes the lightning. So once you have a deity that intervenes in the world, you're starting to put together a measurable criteria for whether that deity exists or not. So if you have uh, a belief, and we'll get to this in a minute or two, if you have a belief that uh, God answers prayers and so on, well, that's great, because now you're saying that the behavior of God is dependent upon the supplications of the faithful. Fantastic. Now we're starting to put a hypothesis together, which we can actually prove, right? So we have a whole bunch of people who can then sit there and pray for something, and a whole bunch of people who can uh, sit there and pray for the exact opposite, and then a whole bunch of atheists, we want all our control groups, a whole bunch of atheists who pray for nothing and wouldn't even imagine doing such a thing, and then a whole bunch of random people doing whatever they're going to do, not even knowing they're part of the experiment. And you would see, right, between these four groups, right, Christians praying for one thing, Christians praying for the opposite thing, atheists not praying for anything, and a bunch of people who are just going around doing their daily lives, you would then see, because you're saying that the uh, God responds to prayers, therefore the prayers versus the non-prayers, you would have a testable hypothesis to test the theory. The moment, the moment, the moment that a deity touches 
one atom, one atom nudges one light beam, then you have a testable hypothesis. If a deity does nothing to intervene in human affairs, in the state of nature, in physical laws, in anything like that, then you don't have a testable hypothesis in the deity, even if it exists or doesn't exist, it makes no difference. You may have a deity, you may believe, who knows, who cares, but you certainly aren't going to have organized religion or prayer or Sunday school or any of these sorts of things because uh, there's no null hypothesis. There's no intervention. Once you get a deity that intervenes in human affairs, then you start to have a null hypothesis, right? So you have to believe that God intervenes, and you also have to believe have to believe that even though God intervenes, there is no testable hypothesis whatsoever to determine whether or not God intervenes, right? So God is like, it's like those psychic experiments, right? If, if you're on the right side of the bell curve of accidentally guessing right, then people go, ooh, you're psychic. And if you're not, then it's well because you didn't believe, right? This is the standard methodology of faith, that God would say, if you put these four control groups together, that God would say, oh, well, I'm not going to answer those people's prayers because it's not genuine, it's just part of a, a scientific experiment or whatever, right? Now, the next thing that you would have to believe if you want to do something like support a religion or support the, the uh, is, is a valid uh, conclusion, the principles of, of organized religion, is you would obviously have to go through the four that we've talked about so far. Uh, God exists, only God exists, only your God exists, and uh, God intervenes. Now then, what you would have to do is you would have to believe that God is moral. This is sort of a two sides of the same coin. God is moral, and God wants something from you, and in return for that, he's going to provide uh, benefits, or she's going to provide benefits. Now, the question of whether God is moral or not is an ancient, ancient, ancient question. It goes all the way back to the pre-Socratics, but... To just take an example, sort of from the uh, the Christian uh, philosophy, or I guess this would be, yeah, this would be the Christian philosophy, theology, not philosophy. <laughs> but to go and have a look at this particular example, we would say, like, if I put forward a particular moral proposition, which says, thou shalt not kill, and then I go around killing people, it could be said to be a little bit hypocritical, right? Or, if not hypocritical, at least it could be said that the morality that I represent, or the morality that I claim to represent, might be just a little bit in question. It would seem to be a fairly sensible approach. Like if I say you shan't kill anyone, you must not kill anyone, killing anyone is the ultimate evil, and then I go on some sort of stabbing spree, uh, it may be fairly questionable about whether or not I'm the most perfect moral human being in existence. Now, uh, God, of course, gives uh, commandments. Uh, I'm just talking about the sort of Old Testament, New Testament stuff. God, of course, gives commandments that God regularly breaks. Thou shalt not kill. He wipes out the whole world except for Noah. Uh, Thou shalt not kill. Uh, he wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah. And in a sort of more specific example that's closer to this question of intervention, God says through Jesus, uh, Jesus is walking along the road, and he sees this uh, Samaritan. No, sorry. He sees this guy who is... Um, all right, let me start this story again. There's a guy walking along the road. He gets beaten by a bunch of robbers thrown into a ditch. A Samaritan walks past and does not just sort of say, hey, guy in a ditch, and uh, walk on. He actually stops and binds the guy's wounds, takes him to a doctor, reads him a bedtime story, 
And this is considered to be uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a very good thing that this guy did. He saw suffering. He had the power to change it. He did not uh, change the suffering. And therefore, it's, uh, it's, it's good, right? It's good if you have the power to, suffer, to, to alleviate suffering, to alleviate that suffering. Ah, but uh, this is the problem. Uh, God himself clearly has the power to alleviate suffering. And not all suffering is caused by free will, so we can sort of dispense with that argument for the moment. But God does not uh, intervene to prevent suffering, although God both, A, has the power to intervene in a way that is far less consuming of his resources than the Good Samaritan, because for God is infinite all-powerful, you know, it's not even a finger snap to solve all of the evils in the world. But the Good Samaritan has to sort of take a day and bind the wounds and pay the money and so on. So it's far less, infinitely less, resource requirements for God to alleviate or uh, prevent uh, or uh, get rid of evil. Uh, And God says that it's a moral thing to do for human beings, but God himself, uh, obviously, uh, not so much with the prevention of evil. And yes, you could say that, and and of course, this is the standard argument that, that you'll get in response, which is to say that, Yes, but God gives human beings free will and won't break that by intervening and so on. But uh, God has already intervened in human life, right? We know, for instance, that the Old Testament deity and the deity that founds the three biggies, right? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that this deity has no problem intervening continually. Not only does he intervene by uh, having people write down his holy words in these books and so on, but uh, he sends prophets, he sends saints, he sends Jesus, he uh, <laughs> he does miracles, he goes down and talks to people, he argues, he debates, he blows people up, he gives other people benefits, he tells this person, go sell your child into sexual slavery, and then he sets fire to this town, constantly intervening, right? So you can't really logically make the argument that... God won't intervene to prevent human suffering because God doesn't like to intervene. The whole uh, story of uh, deities in all religions is that they intervene because you can't get religion without a God that intervenes. Just as I'm not going to found a successful religion based on the principle that uh, Ibu, the invisible elf, lives on the far side of the moon, knows everything, but will never talk to you or, or do anything on your behalf, right? I mean, there's nothing for me to sell, right? So, this uh, question of the ethics of uh, God, or gods, is is a very important one. Because you can't uh, worship uh, someone who's evil. You can obey them, right? And the big big question is, right, do you obey God because God is good, or because God is powerful? It's sort of very, it's very, it's a very important question. We won't sort of be able to get into it quite a bit here. I've done a, a podcast or two on it. If you're sort of interested, you can have a look for those. But... You definitely do have to believe that God is moral, uh, despite the fact that God puts forward moral commandments, which God himself or herself does not fulfill. Right? And this is, this is what would known, be known as hypocrisy and certainly not anything that you would, uh, ab- uh, admire in the, your average human being. So, by God's own moral standards, God is not a good, uh, a good entity. So, you have to believe that God intervenes. You have to believe that is God is that God is good, and you also have to believe have to believe that God wants you to perform certain actions. Right. So God has a need for you uh, to pray, to give money to the poor, to 
uh, give money to churches, to uh, kneel, uh, to pray to Mecca X number of times a day, to cut the foreskin off your off your baby, uh, your baby boy, uh, that God wants you to do a whole bunch of things. And in return for you doing those things, you get uh, a variety of benefits, uh, wealth, prosperity, life after death, uh, the paradise, 72 virgins, whatever, right? So this, uh, I'm sort of just trying to build all of the steps that are actually required for organized religion to be considered valid from a philosophical standpoint, right? I mean, you can get into arguments with theologians and get all different kinds of answers. I'm just talking from a purely rational, logical, empirical philosophical standpoint, philosophical standpoint, this is what philosophy has to offer, and I'm so far, I'm just doing a bunch of breaking down, I'm aware of that, and this is not the end of the road, we're not just breaking things down here, I'm certainly no nihilist, that we are going to aim to actually break, uh, build a shining city on the rubble of historical era, but we are going to make sure that we do it carefully, because I don't want to be putting forward anything that doesn't have a fair amount of rigor to it, because that would just be theological, rather than what I wanted to achieve which was some sort of philosophical rigor. So, God wants praise, God wants obedience, God wants uh, particular and specific actions, which usually involve the transfer of time, money, or resources from one human being to another, i.e. from you uh, to your local uh, priesthood, uh, whatever. And you have to believe that. So God wants something from you, and in return for you doing those things for him, he will give you certain benefits. So it has to be a reciprocal relationship. <laughs> but of course, at the same time, you have to believe that God doesn't intervene. Well, uh, good luck with all of this. Now, the next thing that you have to believe for organized religion to be valid is that God himself speaks to others a whole lot more than he speaks to you. Fairly important. God speaks a whole lot more to others than he does to you, right? This is a case, a little bit of case of the emperor's new clothes. If you've ever read that story, it's very good. Now, you, at least I hope, are not the kind of person who is going to email me and say, uh, Steph, uh, while you were doing your podcasting there, dude, you, this is a God sent this text scrolling across, uh, saying, uh, see, he dresses in black. Uh, he's, he's, uh, you know, stone evil and, you know, God told me this and it was scrolling right there like, uh, uh, CNN text at the bottom of your screen there. No, I, that's probably not what's happening to you in your relationship with God, if you are uh, a religious person. God is not, uh, sending thunderbolts. God is not, uh, making your, uh, barren wife fertile at the age of 70. God is not allowing you to live to 500 or a thousand years like Methuselah. Methuselah? God is not uh, uh, smiting your neighbors uh, or your competition in business. God probably is not doing a whole lot of interventionary stuff for you. And if you feel that he is, uh, medication would probably be the correct answer. But the fact that you don't have any direct communication from a deity that you maybe will get some odd impulses or feel better after you pray, which I fully respect and understand, and I believe there are good psychological reasons for that, and uh, it's not that uh, uh, meditation or prayer or, or introspection don't have any benefit. They do. Uh, you just don't want to confuse them with the existence of an external deity. But you kind of have to believe that God, at some point, uh, either in the past or, or maybe in the present, but not to you, uh, has really opened his heart and had quite the presidential sit-down powwow 
with a bunch of people, um, just not really you uh, so much. So uh, when uh, God wrote uh, or caused people to write the Old Testament, you know, you hope that the big guy was whispering in people's ears and getting them in and all the translators and the people who mistranslated the uh, uh, Hebrew word for a young woman got confused for virgin. So you end up with the Virgin Mary and a whole bunch of uh, messed up Italian men. But you hope that uh, God was sort of whispering in their ears saying, write this next. No, you, you misheard me on that one. Go back, erase that. That's the wrong word. Do it like this. Do it like that. You know, I've changed my mind. It's a virgin birth. So just, just go with that and, and we'll figure it out. Then you hope that God was saying all of these things and it wasn't just a bunch of visions that people were having, but God was actually communicating to them directly about what to write and so on and all the translators and all the lost texts and all this and that and the other, that God was kind of there as the editor-in-chief for the whole process and that people really did see, because you know, it's written in the Bible, so you've got to believe it, that burning bushes and, and lepers being healed and water turned into wine and, and like real, honest-to-goodness miracles, right? And so... You really do have to believe that God spoke a whole lot more to other people in the past than he is speaking to you right now. And that God is, if you're in the kind of religion that has, uh, organized religion has sort of central religious figures or priests or rabbis or imams or whatever. If you believe that God speaks more to those people than God does to you, right? So if you're a Catholic, you can't take communion without a priest and so on because God speaks a whole lot more to the priest than he does to you, despite the fact that you're all human and you're all created by God and all this kind of stuff. You have to believe, right, that somebody out there has a PhD, a direct red phone line to God, uh, and you have to then go to that person to get God's opinion. You can't just sort of go straight to the deity. Uh, you can't really go straight to the source. You always have to go through uh, all of these um, uh, other areas. Now, you also have to believe that the holy books are accurate. And not only do you have to believe that the holy books are accurate, but you also have to believe that they're the product of divine perfection and that all of the inconsistencies in the holy books, of which there's tons and tons of information on the Internet, you can just go and look for it if you want. Uh, I've done podcasts on it. You might want to have a look at it. I can't remember the number. It's early on, and it's called 10 Questions to Ask Your Religious Friends. But you are also going to have to believe that the books are perfect, that the books are divine, that they're correctly inter interpreted all the way down to the language that you're currently speaking, unless it happens to be ancient Aramaic, and also that all of the inconsistencies in the books don't exist, right? And basically, you have to have some belief that you understand what God wants, and that you can provide what God wants, and that God is going to provide you all these benefits if you give money to the priests, and so on, and so on, and so on. Anyway, I don't want to... Ooh, 30 minutes. I don't want to labor the point too, too much, but let's just go over our blinding recap of the things that you have to believe, uh, all of which are a completely irrational, problematic, not proven by any sense evidence, and which we won't even get into, which have considerable motivation for falsehood on the part of the people telling you this, right? So for the priest to tell you, give me some money because of all these things, there's a clear financial benefit in that for the priest. So we look at the, look at Vatican City, right? These people aren't exactly poor. So not only are there an enormous number of falsehoods that you have to swallow in order to accept something like organized religion, but there are clear, clear financial and political power benefits or motivations for the people to tell you 
these lies, right? So well, we have an intellectual crime called lying, and we also have a motive uh, called uh, financial, material, political gain, and so on. So, uh, you know, for me, the case is clear. I mean, you can certainly let me know what you think. So, gotta believe. God exists. You gotta believe only one God exists. You gotta believe only your God exists. You gotta believe God is moral despite all the evidence. You gotta believe that God both intervenes in the realm of telling you all this stuff about himself and blowing up cities and drowning the world, and also that God doesn't intervene, because if God uh, could intervene but uh, didn't, then he would be immoral or she would be immoral. That God wants something from you. That he wants praise, obedience, money, resources, time, whatever. He wants you to wake your kids up early on Sunday. That God also speaks a whole lot more to other people than he does to you, and so you've got to go to these people and sort of buy knowledge from them by giving money. That the holy books uh, of organized religion are accurate despite constant mistranslations, inconsistencies, error, problems, lost books, and so on. And that you understand what God wants and that God will reward you for providing it. And that's just a sample. There's a whole ton more that you would actually need to accept in order to accept something like uh, organized religion as a valid an appropriate way to live your life. I think, I think that philosophy has just a little bit more to offer people. I think that philosophy has just a little bit more to offer you in terms of a more rational, healthy, happy, joyful way to live your life and to make the decisions that you need to make in your life. They're fundamental, moral, and productive, and loving, and genuine, and wise decisions that you need to make in your life. I think philosophy has a whole lot more to offer than that pack of nonsense. And I'm sorry to put it so, dare I say it baldly, but I just sort of want to point out, because philosophers for many years have been sort of tiptoeing around religion, and I think that it's really a bad idea. I don't think you want to tiptoe around religion. I think that we need to point out that it's full of the most egregious errors, contradictions, exploitations, evils, catastrophes, uh, subjugations, and, and uh, falsehoods, especially those taught to children, which I think is extraordinarily destructive to the mind of a child. And I think that philosophy has, and I think that they've stated some good reasons why, that philosophy has an enormous amount more to offer you in terms of helping you to organize your thoughts and live your life in a productive and happy manner than listening to a bunch of, of people who want to exploit you and take your money and take your obedience and, uh, frankly, cut up your children. Uh, I think that philosophy has a whole lot more to uh, to offer you than this sort of superstition and falsehoods and all this kind of nonsense that comes out of uh, religious ideas and I will continue to make that case, though not particularly in the realm of religion. I'll let that sort of sit for a little bit, because what we need to talk about a little bit next is to be begin to build the case for philosophical ethics, for a system of morality, because we don't want to just pull a Nietzsche and get rid of organized religion without putting anything in its place to help people to make ethical decisions. So the next thing that we'll do is we'll start to begin the most exciting part, for me at least, of this journey that we're on. And thank you once more for joining me on it. But we are going to start the process of building ethics from uh, pure reason and from pure uh, scientific knowledge and from pure empirical observation and logic. Seems like the ultimate card trick. Maybe it is, but uh, I hope that you'll join me as we take a swing at it and let me know whether I connect with anything or not. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening as always. I'll talk to you soon.